Hello everyone and welcome to AWARE. We are Paula and Lisa, two students of the Bachelor of Global Sustainability Science at Utrecht University. In this podcast, composed of five episodes, we will have several guests and discuss fast fashion and its possible solutions from many different perspectives. From the history of fast fashion to the latest and most innovative solutions, we will have a journey to explore slow fashion, ethical consumption and circularity in the fashion industry. This will go hand in hand with inspiring discussions with experts and entrepreneurs that have first-hand experience in the industry. We are here to start a discussion about a topic that touches upon all of us. You wake up in the morning, you open your closet and you choose something to wear. Either it is a suit, a uniform, a pair of jeans or a fancy dress, it has impacted the world more than you expected. Are you ready to know more about it? Then stay connected with our podcast to find out. Welcome to the first episode of the AWARE podcast series. Today, we are here to tell you a story, a story that may have been with you your whole life, yet you have never heard of it. It is the story of your clothes. Look at yourself. You're probably wearing a t-shirt right now. Where did it come from? How did it end up in your closet? Let us share it with you. Our story begins in a farm in the US or India or China, you can decide. The farm has the job to industrially harvest enough hectares of cotton fields to meet the demand of the fashion industry. To do so, they use pesticides and huge quantities of water. According to World Wildlife Foundation, it takes 20,000 liters of water to produce just one kilogram of cotton. This is problematic because it compromises the source of fresh water for those who live where cotton is being harvested. We also mentioned the use of pesticides before which can have severe impacts, from poisoning farmers to contaminating the soil and water source of the area. Finally, with a growing demand for clothes, there is a growing demand for cotton, meaning that more land needs to be dedicated to agriculture instead of preserving the natural ecosystems. This can lead to severe losses of biodiversity and deforestation. However, not all clothes are made of cotton. Some are made of synthetic fibers, such as polyester, acrylic, and nylon. These are no better, as they are made by plastics from fossil fuels. As you may already know, these release high amount of CO2. In 2015, the production of polyester for textiles resulted in more than 706 billion kilograms of CO2. There must indeed be something wrong with the fashion industry, if only in the first step we have so many associated negative impacts. But keep listening to our story, because it doesn't end here. Going back to our cotton shirt story, once harvested, the cotton goes through many processes, such as stretching, combing, shredding, until finally they are twisted into ropes of yarn called slivers. Then the cotton slivers are sent to the mill, where they are whipped into fabric. After undergoing all these processes, cotton takes a greyish color, so it is treated with heat and chemicals to turn white. Then, to get the bright colors that we see in our stores, the fabric needs to be bleached and dyed. When the fabric is ready, it is once again shipped to factories where the actual clothes are made. Note that every time the products are shipped and transported from one place to another, they are increasing their carbon footprint by emitting CO2 to the atmosphere. Once in the fabric, workers stitch and sew fabric to make clothes. 
This process is too intricate for a machine, so human labor is required. Workers, who are a wide majority female, undergo precarious working conditions with extremely low wages. An example of this was the famous incident in Rana Plaza in 2013, when a clothing factory in Bangladesh collapsed with all its workers inside. There was 1,134 deaths and more than 2,000 injured. It was eight years ago, yet workers still are under precarious conditions. After being manufactured, the clothes are transported worldwide to stores, where consumers purchase them. Once again, shipping increases carbon emissions of the industry. Nowadays, apparel production accounts for 10% of global carbon emissions, making it the second largest polluter after the oil industry. And now is when you come in, the consumer. You feel more tempted than ever to buy a t-shirt, as the price is low and the whole society is encouraging to buy more and more. In fact, over the course of the 20th century, capitalism molded the ordinary person into a consumer. We buy a lot of clothes, and it's been estimated that the amount of money that consumers spend on clothes, footwear and jewelry, each year is equivalent to the combined gross domestic product of the 126 poorest countries of the world. A research undertaken by the Hochschule van Amsterdam in 2017 showed that the average Dutch person buys and throws away one piece of clothing each week, and each year, a third of their clothing pile goes unworn. After buying clothes, you wear them and wash them. Washing clothes is an important part of the process, because research has shown that every time we wash our synthetic clothing, tiny particles of plastic called microfibers too small to be caught by conventional water treatment, are being washed into our water systems, ending up in rivers, lakes, and oceans. These microplastics then end up in the stomachs of the fish and seafood that we eat, poisoning us. Finally, you decide it is time to move on from this t-shirt. Maybe it is broken or too used or it is simply out fashion. Let's remember that it is in the interest of product advertisers and marketers that the consumer's need and desires never be completely or permanently fulfilled. So your t-shirt needs to be replaced. When you throw away your clothes, they are likely to end in a landfill where they take more than 200 years to decompose. A study showed that between 2000 and 2014, Clothing production doubled with the average consumer buying 60% more pieces of garment compared to 15 years ago. However, each piece of clothing is kept half as long as it used to, and that is the end of our t-shirt story, in a landfill where every day more and more waste from the fashion industry accumulates. This whole process is what we call fast fashion. And it is defined as a design, manufacturing and marketing method focused on rapidly producing high volumes of clothing. It has been proven that the system itself fails in many ways and it seems that little is being done to prevent it. However, do not feel hopeless. In this podcast series, we will not only discuss the negative impacts, but the many solutions and initiatives that have arisen as a result to this problem. One of the many people that are aware of this problem and trying to make a difference is our first guest, Professor Smelik. She is a professor of visual culture at the Radboud University of Nijmegen, who has done research on many issues related to fast fashion. Professor Smelik also received the Radboud Science Award for innovative research on fashion, so we are very excited that she could join us here today. Hi, Professor Smelik. How are you? 
Well, um, yeah, these are sad times. We're still um, getting out of the COVID times, but it's been pretty tough for everyone. And the weather is so bad. I think I suffer even more from the bad weather than from being at home all the time <laughs> because I secretly also enjoyed working at home and not having to commute every day. So anyway, it's great to be here. Yeah, I think we can agree to that. <laughs> and it's also great for us. Okay, we will just dive in. Um, we know that you are interested in the way in which fashion is used to create an authentic and original identity and in the relationship between fashion and culture. Now we are living in a period of fundamental changes. Let's just think about the fact that the most recent period in Earth history has been defined Anthropocene, when human activity started to have a significant impact on the planet's climate and ecosystems. So we can think about climate change, but also societal changes all around the world and increase awareness of human rights, exploitation, social justice. Do you think that this period of fundamental changes is or will be reflected in fashion? And on the other hand, can fashion also be an agent of change? Um, yes, to start with the last thing, yes, I do think fashion can be an agent of change. And I also think, or at least I hope, that indeed it will be a period of change when we come out of this COVID period. Um, and I do see signs that also the fashion world is very willing to change. It's complicated because it's a huge industry. It's really very, very big. So I always see it as some kind of, you know, like those mammoth tankers, the one that was stuck in the Suez Channel the other day, right, that, that canal, that that if if you want to change the direction of such a huge industry, it will take time. It, it doesn't happen overnight. I do see that there is a lot more awareness about all the problems of the fashion industry, which are many. Um, and I also think that, Yes, there is awareness both on the consumer side, also on the producing side. But there are huge buts here. I some you started saying that fashion is related to identity. That's completely true. And because we feel that we express our identity by the way we dress, uh, it becomes a very um, personal thing, and it is apparently for people not really easy to make that move to sustainable fashion. And I, I'm very intrigued by that because I think, for example, if you compare it to food, it's quite comparable to food or the fashion industry in many ways. Uh, food also has to do with our identities, right? But it seems that people are more willing to change the way they eat rather than the way they change how they dress. It may have to do with a lack of choice. There is still not that much choice of sustainable fashion. And of course, one of the other problems is, yes, now the big companies like Zara or H&M are trying to become more sustainable. But sometimes I feel it's almost like drops on a hot plate, you know, that it's evaporating. It's so little. Um, so sometimes I think that the change has to be much, much more fundamental, and that means that consumers need to change, and that is not that easy. You know, so there is more awareness, but to move from awareness to changing behavior is quite complicated. And that is why I think in the end we may need to change the culture of consumption that we're all in. And that, I think, because with food, there is a limit to how much you can consume. But with clothes, there isn't. So, so, and apparently, because clothes have become very cheap, this may be interesting for the audience to know that um, clothes are 
in terms of percentage of our income and what we spend, a lot less in, than, say, in the 1960s or 1970s. So clothes have become complete, totally cheap, whereas we earn more, generally speaking. Uh, so there's a quite, you know, it, it's very easy to spend on cheap clothes because there's so many and it's so, you know, okay, one T-shirt, it's only two euros or five euros. How how can it be? Well, trust me, it can't be there. If if something is that cheap, some somewhere else somebody suffers, right? Mm -hmm. That's, it, it's, it's that whenever you buy cheap clothes, remember that. There is somebody suffering in the world from that. Or the world itself, because of the yeah, the, the pollution, or the the people that were exploited uh, in hard labor to make it. And you mentioned that uh, the fashion industry it's a really big industry, and you also mentioned multinationals such as H and M or Zara. Do you think that globalization it's a driver for fast fashion? Yes, absolutely. Globalization is a driver for fast fashion. Um, fast fashion is relatively recent, and I mean, it really um, is not that old at all. It's, it's really only in the last two decades that it maybe it started in the end of the 90s. Um, Zara was the very first, and what happened in fast fashion is that the production line, because, you know, clothes are pretty difficult to produce. If you think you have to grow the cotton, which is where the first pollution starts, right? Cotton needs a lot of water. Uh, you need to spin Uh, you need to make the fabric, you need to make the design, you, make, you need to print it, you need to dye it, it needs to be sewn, it needs to be embellished and adorned. So it's a very long, so a simple t-shirt may have 40 steps in the production line. And globalization, or at least what Zara, uh, for, they were the first to do that, is to make the production line, which was about 14 months, almost a year and a half, and they reduced it back to six to eight weeks. And now, apparently, the pressure is such that it's being reduced even more. And that has to do with globalization, but also with capitalization. It's real, you know, this is real capitalism and its raw core. So... But, and and by making that production line so much shorter, um, you could say that, that everything is now suffering of a burnout, to, to use that as a metaphor. The people who have to make it, the earth is being, uh, you know, completely depleted. And uh, But also the consumers who almost have a burnout from shopping, right? I mean, one of the interesting things during the COVID time, um, the lockdowns, was how much we all missed shopping, right? And And I think... It's very important to acknowledge our own share in that. I missed shopping, right? And now I noticed that already several times I went shopping without buying anything, just for the sake of feeling that I'm shopping. So what is it in us that our patterns of consumption are so deep and so related to who we think we are, to our identity, that we need to consume? as fast as uh, that whole fast fashion produces. Yeah, this is indeed a very interesting reflection. In some of your work, you also discuss about materials, uh, which bring together a transnational and local dimension. We talk about globalization. So in our interconnected world, materials travel across countries, as well as finalized products ready to be sold. But we mentioned that this created a huge amount of CO2 emission, So how important is the local element in our interconnected world? Do you think this is something that fashion brands should consider or should they use their energy to decrease carbon emissions in other way? 
I find that very difficult. I'm not a technician. I'm a theorist. You know, I, I do fashion theory. I, I, I try to theorize what I see happening in contemporary culture. Um, so it's not for me to say how to reduce CO2 uh, emissions. I do think that there are now absolutely local initiatives. I know I, I work with the Artes Academy in Arnhem, and I know that they have many, many local initiatives to have small little companies um, that, that uh, in projects that they call closing the loop. So to really have circular fashion. And so, so, um, and I'm sure that this is happening all over, at least the Western world. That there is, that they're trying to relocate uh, um, local production. But you can also see in in just something as simple as the face masks, right? They were all produced in the in the East. Um, so when the lockdown started, we all needed those face masks, um, but we're not producing them anymore. The factories left in the 70s and 80s and the factories are gone. You can't suddenly bring back factories and all the machinery. It's complicated. Um, so my problem with local production is, yes, I think it's one of the ways to do it, but my problem is it's so small. It's all you know, it's small, it's it's relatively expensive compared to the fast fashion. So it will take a long time t- for all of that to actually make it. But I do think that there are loads and lots of um, small initiatives, um, probably all over the world. I just know that it's happening in Holland everywhere. So, you know, as a consumer, you can really look around and see what kind of local production there is. But there are many other ways huh, to um, that, that people are looking at. For example, maybe one of the things of, of fast fashion, to come back, what the problems of fast fashion is. What shocked me the most when I came to this field of research is that, and I didn't notice, that clo- when clothes are produced, one-third is sold in the shops. One-third is sold in the shops for with a discount, so in the sales. And... One third is thrown away without ever having been sold. Now, that is insane. If you know the masses, the tons of fabrics and textiles and clothes that are produced and that one third, uh, and some even say 40%, is discarded without ever being used, I find that really shocking. And this is coming out now more um, to, to, to the public, to the audience, so that means that there is an overproduction that is insane, right? This is really sick. This is, again, a sick kind of capitalism. So, yes, there may be local initiatives that are very sustainable, but that doesn't immediately solve those huge problems on the other side, like this overproduction of clothes. And now they're, they're t- talking about recycling. But, for example, I don't know whether you followed the news that, I don't know whether it was a year or two years ago, that uh, it became public that Burberry actually burns its own stock that is not sold because they want to protect their brand by keeping it exclusive. So, um, you know, how how can we... Um, reduce how how can we go back to an, a new society where where or a new pattern of 
production and consumption that is really different, where we don't look at this kind of overproduction. Well, one of the ways of doing that is to um, to look at, at how uh, digital media can help. For example, that you would order something online and have programs where you can feel the sort of mat- what a material is like, because that's a big thing in clothes, and when you translate it to the digital, uh, you lose that material edge that is so important, Uh, but also that you can have programs where you can, as it were, try it on yourself in different colors, that that you enter your measures, and then that you order it, and then it is made to measure, so that you don't get that overproduction. So this is, I know that this is one of the things that the textile industry is looking at, that maybe uh, to to avoid that, that overproduction. And I think that may be quite interesting and quite different from that whole idea of local production that is sustainable and where the loop is closed. Wow, so it would be sort of like having your own virtual closet in a sense. In a way, yes, absolutely. And um, because, of course, clothes is very different. You can't compare it to cars, but this is already happening to cars. Cars are very much, uh, you know, you order it and then it is made kind of thing. Um, so so you don't have this, this ridiculous overproduction in other uh, areas. Um, so, so I think that we need to be a little bit more creative than just look at local production. I think we need, again, because the field is so unsustainable that we need many, many different ways of looking how to change it. So maybe now I would like to bring the discussion a little bit uh, to something that you previously mentioned, which is also the social uh, aspect and the social impacts that the fast fashion industry. And I want to bring up a reflection around the world. Most factory managers, supervisors and owners are men. And women continue to be excluded from fashion's collective consciousness, even though they are the backbone of the industry. Furthermore, Countless women report uh, that low wages, sexual harassment and assault, short-term contracts and pregnancy discrimination run rampant within the very facilities which produce clothing on our backs. Why is it that fashion, which benefits from women's labors, money and influence, is still largely run by men? I actually was not aware of that um, because for me, um, also when I move around in the industry, I actually do see a lot of women, certainly here in the West. You know, the problem with the whole fashion production is, and it may be interesting to go back two centuries to Marx, that Marx already wrote about the exploitation in um, textile factories. So it it was... it's. You know, his whole theory of what's wrong with capitalism, one of the examples that he uses is the textile industry because it was women and children that worked in there um, in hours that we can just not imagine. What has happened is that I already said the factories have moved out of Holland in the 70s um, and in other countries in the 80s from the West to other parts of the world that are very far away from here. So in a way, that kind of what Marx criticized in 1860 is now happening uh, in in what we call the so-called third world. Um, I know that 80% of um, factory laborers in fashion are women, so it's not only uh, women. Um, And yes, the exploitation is uh, pretty terrible. Um, And 
again, there are very funny um, documentaries and films um, to, to watch from Albert John Stewart did a very funny one on um, the fast fashion industry. Uh, and and basically what those documentaries show is that already since the 90s, the scandals about the exploitation of, of people come out. And they, they say, oh, yeah, well, we will change. And, you know, but the problem is subcontractors. So when, um, because also in Holland, there is now a convenant that the a previous minister uh, did a few years ago, I think in 2016, a convenant of all the fashion industry in Holland trying to work to create better circumstances for the people in the factories in the third world, if I may use that term. Um, and um, and one of the problems is that, okay, they make a deal with a factory and that factory has then many, many, many subcontractors and then they don't control the others. So it remains a huge problem um, that should be absolutely on the agenda. And yes, there are a lot of women working in there and still even a bit of child labor. Um, it's 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 I, find, I always find it very complicated, very complicated issues and uh, and and again painful, you know. Um, so yes, there is a gender issue, um, but I do feel that the field of fashion women do have at least here in the West absolutely a, a great say in in the field. So I don't feel it's a very male dominated industry, not as badly as other ones. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you speak of like uh, you like European countries or Western countries, or do you speak in general of the industry? I was thinking more of European countries, but also the field of fashion is so complicated because uh, it, it, it's very diverse, right? There is the production of the factories, but all the designing happens mostly in the West. Mm-hmm. And in that whole design field, uh, women really do play yes, an indeed. incredible big role. And I also do think that they bring in that kind of awareness. We talk about some social impacts that happened before we buy clothes in the store. And nowadays, often people that go in a big chain of fast fashion buy cheap clothes without even thinking a lot about what they are expressing with those clothes. So in your opinion, how can society rediscover the authenticity of clothes as a form of expression? Is it something that only wealthier people that can have uh, tailor-made clothes can afford? Uh, that's complicated. Who can afford it? Let's talk here about the West because this is what I know and where we are and, and, and this is the audience that I'm talking to today. Um, what is our responsibility in our relation to clothes? I think that is one of the questions that basically you're asking here. And I think, of course, clothes help us to express our social identities. It helps us belong to a certain group, right? I think that's very underestimated. People always feel that they express their... Unique individuality, I'm always slightly skeptical of that. Um, I think our, uh, that we want much more to belong to a group. Just look at the streets. People more or less look all the same, right? So uh, that's very important. But let's not forget that we are quite wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And if we want to change our patterns of consumption, if we want to become more aware of what it costs the world or other people uh, in the world um, by producing it. Uh, if we want to change that whole complicated uh, relation, uh, yeah, yeah, um, 
a field of fashion, then I do think we need as consumers to change our relation to our clothes. And here I really also want to talk a little bit to younger people because I I notice that I I have clothes that I have, even the clothes I'm wearing, these are already at least eight years old, but I have clothes already that are 20 years old, right? So um, if you develop an emotional bond to your clothes that if you wear a nice dress and you feel very good in it and you remember the first kiss that you had, blah, 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 right? The, the clothes become imbibed with memories. And, um, and, and there, I think, if you buy something that costs a little bit more and that is slightly better made, it's probably a little bit easier to create that bond. And I think um, it, it, it's almost like an ethics of care here that I would like to introduce that maybe if we do that, because I, I can vouch for it, that if you buy something expensive or, or more expensive than the really cheap clothes in, in, in the big chains, it's both more unique, um, but you also develop a different relation to it because obviously you don't just throw it um, in, in, in the washing machine or in the garbage or whatever, right? So I think that that may be one of the ways that we can change if we want to really change the world. I think we need that emotional connection to clothes or to other objects because, let's face it, it's not the only way where we... Um, where there is mass consumption. And I think that, that that kind of ethics of care that we put into the food or that we put into the clothes or that we put into um, how we decorate our room makes us happier in general, but also um, will stop us from that incredible fast consumption. I think fast consumption is only based on, you know, if you get it fast, you can throw it out fast, right? You can discard it fast as well. So so if you want to introduce some kind of slowness, um, for me, it would be that emotional connection, to create emotional connections to the clothes that you wear so closely. I mean, it's very intimate. They are on your body, on your skin. So, you know, better love them and take care of them and don't throw them out so easily. Uh, and then at one point... Um, you know, your wardrobe is full and then you can look at your wardrobe very critically and every year think, okay, what do I need new? You know, I created my own rule because, of course, I have far too many clothes. I mean, I'm as guilty as hell here. Um, so I, I introduced my own rule. I am only allowed to buy something new if something else goes out. And because now I, at my age, I now have good clothes, I bring them to a vintage shop. Uh, we know that you worked on new materialism. Uh, what does it mean for you? I will give a fun answer rather than a very theoretical one. For me, new materialism means um, to two things, actually, to, to take away a little bit the central position of the human, so to look more at the non-human world. And that was the second one. So the first is to displace a little bit the central position of the human. And the second one is uh, to, to open up more to the non-human world. And I once read in a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, a Buddhist teacher, that if you open a book, that in every page you can see the sun and the water because the page is made, um, the, the paper is made out of a tree and that tree could only grow because of the sun and the water. And that example always stayed for, with me, and I think it's very poetic. So if I now look at the clothes that I'm wearing, which are part cotton and part polyester, you know, I can think 
And I think it's almost like an exercise to take the non-human world very seriously that I think now, oh, in this blue, dark blue um, blouse and sweater, there is actually the sun and there is the water because the cotton needed that to grow. Actually, it needed far too much water, which is one of the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also think there is also hard labor in this. Somebody made it, although it's, of course, a lot of machines, but also there are always human hands that have touched and made it. And I think if we... Uh, I find it a very interesting exercise. Of course, you can't you know, go around thinking about the world all the time like that. But again, it comes back to that notion of care, that if you think that in, in that even humble T-shirt from Primark, there is the sun, the water and the hard labor, I think, again, it helps us to, to, to be kind. Can I say that? To be kind to the non-human world, you know, to, to, to be open um, to that non-human world and to give it a space and an importance that it needs if we want to go to a sustainable future. Um, coming back to a national level, in the Netherlands, we do not experience the negative environmental and social impacts from the fast fashion industry, but we only experience the final product in our shops. How can you convince someone of the relevance of an issue that doesn't affect them directly? Okay, that's interesting. And I think that's also where it's different from food. You know, if food goes into your body, so you feel maybe more responsible that if it's bad food, that you shouldn't do that, um, that it's bad for you. Um, well, it's not completely true that that it only happens in far away in another part of the world. For example, part of the uh, problems of um, the fashion production is the huge transport from, you know, the cotton picking fields to that factory and then to another country to to sew it, to cut, make and trim it. And then uh, it comes all the way in those huge tankers that we know now <laughs> through the Suez Canal to, to, to the West. So, you know, it, it's not true that the pollution only happens there. Also, um, you may have seen images of blue rivers, um, dark blue and even blue people from the indigo to dye jeans. But, you know, you do wash your jeans in your washing machine here, and that blue indigo also gives off here. And that blue indigo also gives off on your skin. So it's not completely true that it only happens there. It also ends up here. Um, And finally, you discard the clothes, and then, you know, the waste also is here. So... That, that is one point. And the other point is, it's one world, for Christ's sake, you know. It's one world. If there is pollution on the other side of the world, it will eventually affect us. You know, because the oceans, the rivers and the oceans get polluted. We get less fish and less this and that, you know. So it, I think it's a bit dangerous to to you, to think in, in that way that, oh, it happens there. Yes, it's short-term thinking. In the long term, it also happens here. And it is already happening here. I mean, our pollution is also pretty bad, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, a, a complicated answer that partly um, it, it, it happens here and partly um, the idea that we are living in one world and that we are all responsible for it and that we cannot not be responsible for it. So 
as a final question and maybe rather broad, uh, what key message do you think the audience should remember after hearing our discussion? Be aware that fast fashion is really a rotten system and that people suffer from it, the world suffer, the earth suffers from it. So just try and avoid fast fashion as much as you can. And, um, and basically, I would say love your clothes, take care of them. Don't throw them out so easily. Love them, keep them, cherish them. Thank you, Professor Smelik, for being with us today. It was a very interesting discussion. We hope this was food for thought for all of you. It definitely was for us. Our next guest, Merunisha Munilal, is a lecturer in sustainability at the Amsterdam Fashion Institute. She has a background in fashion and she opened her own sustainable business in 2006. She moved to India because her production was there and she was interested in learning more about the production processes. There, she started teaching at university in New Delhi before coming back to the Netherlands and attending a master in sustainable business and innovation at Utrecht University. Hi, Merunisha. We are glad to have you here. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Good as well, yeah. <laughs> we are aware of your first-hand experience in the textile industry for some years in your life. And would you mind sharing with us what it was like to work for the textile industry? Uh, yes, of course. Um, well, yes, indeed, some years in my life. Um, that does make me sound rather old, actually. <laughs> Um, well, I started working in fashion, I'd say, about uh, 20 years ago. And my first job in fashion uh, was uh, in sourcing and buying. And one of my core responsibilities, coincidentally enough, was uh, auditing uh, factories. And this was in uh, Southeast Asia. And at the time, I was really super excited to travel and to see the world and to dive deeply into other cultures and how those cultures um, uh, influenced uh, fashion. But uh, unfortunately, one of, the, one of the things that really upset me when I started traveling and working in fashion was uh, I found that while auditing factories, I became quite uh, traumatized because I couldn't believe the circumstances in which most uh, women, especially in this industry, uh, worked. So when I visited factories, it was really predominantly at least 80% women on the factory floor. And I have to say that... Um, just the, the kind of conditions, the living and working conditions that they were in uh, was quite shocking for me. So it was a sort of love-hate relationship because I love this industry. I love the creativity. I love textiles. I, I grew up with textiles. I I'm, uh, My great-grandparents come from India and uh, it's, a, it's a country full of beautiful textiles and so it's always been a part of my life. Uh, but to witness and to see uh, such inhumanity in the industry made me realize that it was an industry uh, of extremes, so extreme beauty and extreme ugliness. And the ugliness is what I really wanted to change. 
So, Maronisha, from your point of view, do you think that people in Western countries are aware of what is happening in places such as India, like you mentioned, where the clothing factories are located? Um, well, uh, yes and no. Um, I think that there are enough people that understand that uh, the world is not perfect. Uh, and I think that there are enough people that understand that the only way that they can buy uh, an item of clothing at a very cheap price comes at a bigger price, and that is the price of the people around them. So my answer to that is yes and no, because I think that if you have the tiniest bit of consciousness, then you know that there is no such thing as cheap clothes, and really there's only uh, cheap labor. Uh, Labor. Uh, but the problem is that I think that uh, here in the West, we are so far removed from this reality that it is difficult for people um, here to take this idea into their frame of reference. Um, I don't think that they mean to be bad. I don't think that they... I don't think that they consciously want to um, uh, alleviate this problem, but I do think that it's much easier when you are shopping and you want to make yourself a little bit high by buying yourself a new T-shirt and make yourself feel good. And you can't do both. You can't give yourself the feel-good feeling and at the same time think, well, this T-shirt for five euros or pair of jeans for seven euros was made by, you know, by child labor or forced labor or women that really have to feed their families but don't get paid a decent wage. You, it doesn't work like that. So yes and no. As we have introduced before, the fashion industry has many negative impacts associated. You just mentioned some social impacts, but of course we know there are also some environmental impacts. Do you think there is one main problem that needs to be tackled first? Yes, I do. Um, I think that uh, what we can tackle uh, immediately is human rights and workers' rights. And I know that we've been talking about social sustainability for a very long time in this industry. But the fact that we still haven't managed to figure out a way to pay uh, workers in the global south a decent wage or rather what we would call a living wage as opposed to the minimum wage of that country. I think that this is something that should be tackled. Uh, I also think that if you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, the 17 SDGs, I think that this is a very, very important uh, framework for businesses uh, to undertake. And I think that it is a fantastic business plan that can be implemented across industries. So I think that if you look also at the SDGs and if you look at the SDG for education, for equality, uh, for poverty, for example, um, uh, I, I think that these are the things that we can tackle very easily. Uh, and why? Because uh, the only thing that we need to do is we need to actually learn how to interact with people and be fair. So it's just about being humane. We don't need a scientific solution for this. It's just a humane solution. Maybe a bit related to this, like in some of your talks you have mentioned that you think that there is a disconnection between people and the clothes they wear. Why do you think that is? 
Yes, there is a, a, a disconnect. Uh, and um, I think, and as I said, I think it's very difficult for people to imagine that what they paid for uh, is, is something that was paid for almost with blood, as we would say. So it's easier to believe that everything is okay. Uh, and I also think that uh, clothes have a disconnect because it's something that you put on top of your body, on top on top of your skin, but not inside your body. So, for example, if you look at the food, if you look at the the agro, uh, the agro in agriculture industry, the food industry, it's so much easier for them to be sustainable. It's so much easier for them to sell sustainable um, uh, products because, as a human being, if you put something inside you, you are so conscious about what you're putting inside your body and you're less conscious about what you're actually covering your body with because this is also something more visual. So it's a little bit more, um, it's for the outside world. It's not necessarily for yourself and you want to look good. So I think this disconnect also comes with maybe a tiny bit of vanity. Uh, so you're not necessarily thinking about, you know, who's making your clothes, what is going on in this industry. You really just want to wake up in the morning and you feel good by, you know, maybe eating a healthy breakfast and then you also feel good by putting on something nice to step out the door. And I think that this is the same for things like uh, hair products, for example, you know, shampoos and in, in beauty products are also not always uh, sustainable. We mentioned before talking about the SDGs, for example, education. Uh, how do you think that education and raising awareness in the Netherlands, for example, can have an impact in workers in the textile industry? I've been thinking about this for a long time and I find this uh, quite uh, an interesting question because I think that uh, and 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 also uh, as 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 a lecturer myself and as a lecturer in sustainability I'm often talking about the SDGs and this is actually a question that I'm I'm often asking students myself and that is you know how does education raise awareness how does education in sustainability in the fashion supply chain can it raise awareness and where does it raise awareness and for myself my own my personal opinion is that this awareness uh, it's not going to change the impact on workers in developing countries i think that raising this awareness is going to change consumer behavior in the west but uh, changing the impact on workers or any kind of sustainability impact on workers has to be handled in the country within the legal parameters of that country itself. It is not up to us in the West to tell people what to do. So in the global north, I don't think that we should be telling people what to do in the global south. And, and my, my reasoning for this is because in different cultures, uh, different uh, ideologies are more important. We don't know, I think, sitting here, what it must feel like to need to put food on the table for your child. So who am I to look at somebody else that's my age in another country and say, you have to be sustainable just because I think I need to be sustainable? I think that we need to find a way to communicate what sustainability means and how we are going to implement this in different cultures as well. Yeah, that's indeed very interesting, like a very interesting point of view. Um, and now I want to ask you something that maybe not all of our listeners are really aware of. 
So I want to ask, can you tell us about the distribution of profit in the, cl in the clothing supply chain? <laughs> and what are the main problems with it? And how can profit be fairly distributed among workers in the different phases of the uh, supply chain? I know it's really broad and it's well, more personal, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it is broad. But then again, um, what I'm looking at here is I'm looking at the three pillars of uh, um, of uh, people, planet and prosperity. So not profit, but really prosperity. And I think that in sustainability and, and of course, uh, I know that you girls are studying sustainability yourself, so you understand what the three pillars are but I think that these pillars are not really understood generally uh, in society and sometimes also in most businesses that I've worked in they really don't know what these three pillars are. So this is actually quite an academic theory. The three pillars, uh, people, planet and prosperity, is really something that we know about. Now, I feel that the distribution anyway of profit indeed, and it has been, it actually used to be people, planet and profit. And we recently changed that to prosperity. And I think that this is about of course, getting an equal piece of the pie. And and here again, I feel that the solution can be very simple for this, and that is just pay that worker a living wage. If you want somebody to work for you, it cannot you it cannot possibly be something that you think is right if you think this person has to work for me for eight or 12 hours a day and still not be able to feed their children or have a roof above their heads. And I'm not talking about luxuries. I'm not talking about that people have to be able to afford uh, expensive electronics and things like this. I'm just talking about very basic things in life that everybody should have access to. And that is education for children, a meal on the table, a roof, you know, the basic things that you need, a roof above your head, some food on the table, and you should be able to read and write in this world. And I think that as a business owner, If you don't understand this, then this is exactly where we go wrong in the distribution of profit. And I do think that, of course, uh, the time is coming, it's not there yet, where we stop paying, for example, CEOs, you know, six-figure salaries, while the entire supply chain cannot feed themselves. Again, I'm talking about food. I do love cake. Yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do think that this is something very important to think about. That, you know, it's, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all, actually. This is indeed really important. Moving to a closer perspective to our listeners, Uh, which individual actions to be more aware of the social and environmental impacts throughout the whole supply chain do you suggest to our audience? So I think that if you are an, uh, are an individual, I'm not sure that you can... I don't, I don't know that a consumer can really think about the entire supply chain, but what I think that you can do as an individual is think about uh, your own personal belongings, so at least the clothes that you are wearing on your back. So... What are you doing with this? So think about, you know, um, I always suggest when people ask me, I always say, well, do you really need to buy another pair of jeans or another T-shirt? I mean, start with simple things like, uh, you know, maybe things that our grandmothers used to do, which was repairing stuff. So try to repair things in your wardrobe, you know, uh, start to look at your own 
your own wardrobe? Do you really need to throw something away? Can it be repaired? Can it be in some way upcycled? Um, I think another good thing to do is maybe uh, reusing uh, uh, clothes. And it doesn't have, to, and I don't mean that you have to just only reuse your own clothes, but I think that you've got a massive wardrobe. If you look at the wardrobe of your friends and family, actually, you you know, you have several wardrobes in which you can swap. And if you are similar sizes, then you don't really need to even buy something. You could really just swap. So this is a, a way of reusing things that are already there. And then I think one of the other important things for us to do in the home is to rethink our habits. And by this, I mean, think about how often do you really need to wash your clothes? What kind of detergents you are using? Uh, do you really need to, you know, uh, do you really need to wash that one item uh, because you must wear it tomorrow? I think it's also about rethinking our habits. Um, we are, uh, you know, uh, creatures of habit generally. And uh, I think that what we are taught is what we do in life. So, you know, I, and if our parents, taught us that things needed to be put in the wash basket every day. I, I know that I was taught that. I mean, I had to put my clothes in my wash basket every day. And so, of course, when I became an adult, I had to relearn that. And I'm not saying that my mother did a bad job teaching me. She did a fantastic job. But that was her reality. And that was her uh, you know, um, uh, a reference, uh, a frame of reference at that time. If you know better, then you should at least try to do better. Thank you so much. That was really interesting. <laughs> You're welcome. In this episode, we introduced the concept of fast fashion and we explore the different social and environmental impacts that are associated with it. To end this episode, we want to share a quote by Livia Ferd with you. Fast fashion is like fast food. After a sugar rush, it just leaves you a bad taste in your mouth. We believe that now that you know the basics, you're ready to dive into the next episodes. At times, discussion in this podcast will be hard to listen to, as they will result in a complete shift of how we see the fashion industry. This podcast series will be both an educational and an emotional journey that we would like you to share with us. Thank you for listening to this first episode of AWARE. Keep tuned for next week's episode about fashion history and the current fast fashion situation in the Netherlands. Feel free to check out our Instagram page at AWARE Podcast. And see you next time. Thank you.